You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. This week's episode is brought to you by Magical Europe. Magical Europe is a website with beautiful pictures, historical and cultural profiles, and stories of European folktales and mythology. They are easily one of the most fascinating resources on the web for information on European traditions and living. Go check them out either at their website or on their very active Twitter page, at Magical Europe. Hello everyone, this is your host Gary. On a recent trip to the San Francisco Bay Area, I had the opportunity to interview Professor Ethan Katz of UC Berkeley. Professor Katz is an incredibly accomplished scholar with a list of awards, grants, and fellowships for his books that is so long that it could be a book in and of itself. His most recent book was The Burdens of Brotherhood, Jews and Muslims from North Africa to France, published by Harvard University Press in 2015 and is the primary topic of today's interview. Professor Katz specializes in both the history of Jews in modern France and the history of Jewish-Muslim relations in modern France. France is an incredibly important country for Jews. France was the first country to give Jews full political rights under Emperor Napoleon. During the 19th century, tens if not hundreds of thousands of Jews emigrated to France from the east as they fled the Russian pogroms. Today, France has the third highest population of Jews in the world behind Israel and the United States. France also has the second largest Muslim population of any European country behind Russia. As such, Jewish-Muslim relations are incredibly important within France. In what follows, Professor Katz tries to untangle the complex history of Jews, the development of their identity in the 20th century, and their relationship with Muslims. If there is a central theme to this episode, it is that of Frenchness, as Jews and Muslims have alternately accepted or rejected a French identity, and in turn tried to have their identities accepted by France and its people. Please enjoy. Thank you very much for being with us, Professor Katz. I am very excited about uh, this interview because this does seem to be very relevant, but also a very hot-button issue that you're dealing with. I'm sure we can talk about potential controversies as we get along. But you focus on Jews in 20th century France. From my understanding, this was a time of intense contradictions. On the one hand, Jews were much more tolerated in France than much of the rest of Europe. In the preceding century, hundreds of thousands of Jews migrated from the east to France, and this continued into the 20th century. Uh, Meanwhile, in part because of these mass migrations, many on the far right promoted anti-Semitic policies and stereotypes. Can you tell us about the intense and contradictory place of Jews in France in the first half of the 20th century? 
Sure. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. I A lot of what you're describing there really is centered in the 1930s and 1940s. The largest migrations of Jews to France occur from the late 19th century to the late 1930s, and really the largest one takes place in the interwar years when the population grows from about 110,000 to over 300,000. And as you say, the majority of those people come from Eastern Europe. And as we know, the 1930s in France, as in many places, are a time of economic depression, they're a time of heightened xenophobia, they're a time for France of a kind of cultural malaise and sense of crisis that goes beyond uh, economics or social problems. And in those circumstances, you have a dramatic rise in anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-black sentiment, and anti-Semitism probably most prominently. And at the same time, this is a moment where the response to the threat of fascism in France is this great counter-mobilization of the left between 1934 and 1936, culminating in the election of the Front Populaire, the Popular Front, in 1936. And the head of that coalition and that government is Leon Blum, who is a very proudly Jewish uh, French politician, the head of the French Socialist Party, and the first man to be elected, what the French call premier, but effectively prime minister uh, of France. And he is, on the one hand, only able to be elected prime minister in France because of the opportunities that are there for Jews. And at the same time, he is jeered as a Jew in the National Assembly shortly after his election, uh, where uh, one uh, deputy, Xavier Vallat, who will become a major official for anti-Semitic policy under the Vichy government, says, you know, we need someone deeply rooted in French soil, not a subtle Talmudist. Uh, which is a, you know, a terrible anti-Semitic screed against uh, Bloom. So it's it's a moment. I mean, France has this contradictory history. It has these, these countervailing fo- forces, uh, and then we see them really turned on their head. Whereas the promise of the Republic and its inclusionary tendencies and the tradition of the French Revolution create a certain amount of protection for Jews through the 20s and 30s, even in the face of intense anti-Semitism, that's all wiped away with the fall of France in 1940 and the emergence of the Vichy government and a very systematic policy of anti-Semitism, which, as we know very well now from historians, those policies began well before the demands of the German government and the policies in the southern zone of France, right, where the Vichy government had a significant amount of control from 1940 to 1942, they were really more rapidly anti-Jewish and intensely anti-Jewish in many of their policies than the Germans in the occupied zone during uh, those first two years of the war. Uh, So uh, that, of course, is a there's there's a deep sense of betrayal for French Jews for all of the challenges of the 1930s. Uh, for the longer history that included the Dreyfus Affair uh, in the 1890s, in the early 20th century, Jews felt very aligned with that revolutionary tradition, very aligned with Republican democracy in France, very much at home, right? There's a saying uh, in the early 20th century, uh, like a Jew in France, to describe a situation of paradise uh, for a Jew uh, elsewhere in Europe. 
there some even called it the promised land. Right. There's a, there's a claim about uh, France as a New Jerusalem uh, that's already widespread in the late 19th century. Um, and so for Jews who lose their property, who have their rights stripped away uh, with the fall of France in 1940 and the emergence of the Vichy government, and, and who are not able, despite lobbying intensely and in many cases talking about ways that they've served the state historically and all these things to regain their rights, uh, there's a deep, deep sense that their world has been shattered uh, and their faith in France has been shattered. And yet, despite all that, after the liberation of France in 1944 to 1945 and the return of the Republic, most Jews appear to have their faith in France in some significant measure restored based on the strength of the resistance, uh, based on the effort of various resistance figures to try to uh, stand up against anti-Jewish measures, um, and based on their own desire for a return to normalcy. And so, in some ways, what I think we can fairly describe as a kind of great love affair uh, of a significant Jewish population with uh, its home country in France, in a sense, resumes in 1945, not entirely as if nothing had happened, but um, I think largely also based on the assumption that the vast majority of anti-Semitic measures had been orchestrated by an outside force, the Nazis, uh, and a small cadre of people uh, supporting them at Vichy. We now realize that that was not an accurate view of things, but I think it made it easier also. So, so yeah, so we have these tremendous ebbs and flows in the first half of the 20th century in terms of Jude's relationship to France and their sense of inclusion or exclusion. So you bring about the French resistance and how the activity of the French resistance helped restore faith in France uh, of the Jews, but currently you are working on a project about Jews actually being involved in a lot of military engagements against Vichy France. Uh, Previously, it was titled Freeing the Empire, the Jewish Uprising that Helped the Allies Win the War. Can you tell us about this? Uh, Yes. So that that is my current project, and it's a project really based in Algeria. Uh, We'll probably get a chance to talk about my first book and how it sort of led me toward uh, an interest in, in French Algeria. But this is a story that's remarkably little known. Uh, It's a story of a small group of several hundred people, mostly Jews, and most of the non-Jews are probably anti-Semites. They're, in many cases, uh, from the same kind of far-right groups that I spoke a few minutes ago about, Um, but they have aligned interests. Those people want to resume the fight against the Germans, and so uh, in in, in, in the city of Algiers and in some Uh, other towns of Algeria, they begin, various groups begin organizing, and they coalesce in the autumn of 1942 to help prepare the way for the success of the American landing uh, in Algiers. And they play an essential role by taking over almost all the strategic locations in Algiers from the Vichy government on the night before the Americans arrive, uh, and they do that quite successfully, uh, and there are almost no casualties uh, as a result of that when the Allies come to enter Algiers, which is you know, really the key target of the invasion, with Algiers 
uh, they have basically taken French Algeria and signaled that they are going to uh, be taking uh, French North Africa uh, in a short time. Um, so it's a remarkable story, and it's a group of Jews who are, by and large, students, small shop owners, doctors, lawyers, civil servants, um, people who are tend to be very, very integrated in their sense of their Frenchness, but people who are also mostly in social circles with principally other Jews, often involved in Jewish organizations that are combating anti-Semitism or working for better relations with Christians and Muslims. Um, people whose Jewishness is in some cases awakened by the events of 1940. What's crucial in the Algerian context, unlike most people in mainland France, is that in October 1940, with the Jewish statute there, all of the Jews of Algeria who have had French citizenship, and then that is almost every Jew in Algeria has had French citizenship for the preceding 70 years, they all lose that citizenship with the stroke of a pen. Uh, and so that context really creates a tremendous sense of betrayal for these Jews as well, and for many people, a kind of political awakening uh, that leads them into uh, this resistance group. That is very fascinating, and I wanted to ask one more question then about Jews in World War II, uh, specifically about the public's image of Jews during this period, because you seem to be proposing a whole new perspective on Jews that maybe people don't have, because generally speaking, I feel like the public thinks when they think about Jews during World War II, it's mostly as victims or hiding. But here you have Jews taking an active role, even taking over uh, a major city. Uh, do you, uh, how do you want to change the public's perspective then about Jews during this period? Or do you? That's a good question. So in some ways I think you're, you're correct in that that public image is very prevalent. I'm not sure in some ways what is required to change that public image. That is to say, we now have a lot of scholarship about Jews as resistors. Um, we have books with titles like Jews Who Fought Back, right? We have this significant effort that scholars have undertaken already to show that Jews were not simply passive victims in World War II. Um, so I'm, I don't have enough of a sense of self-importance to think that my book will transform that image where others have not. This is a great story. It's a story that also has a direct connection to American history because of the American landing and they collaborated with the Americans. The most distinctive facet of it is the success of this effort. The most familiar case of Jewish resistance for most people is the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, a valiant but tragic and arguably doomed from the start effort to resist the Nazis and the liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto. Fundamentally different in almost every way from uh, this effort. And so I do want to try to recenter our understanding of Jewish resistance during World War II by thinking comparatively about what made this effort successful uh, versus the movements that we know better uh, uh, in mainland France and Eastern Europe and across Europe, but I'm not, I don't think it's unique insofar as Jews fighting back or participating in resistance. 
it happens to be a story of great success, which perhaps will have a different impact on people's image, but I can't say. Well, I wish you the best of luck <laughs> in becoming huge and popular. Maybe you should contact Quentin Tarantino and tell them this is uh, Inglorious Bastards, but real. Maybe you can get that movie made. From your lips to God's ear. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, so moving now beyond World War II. So you've researched Jews in the post-war period in multiple contexts, though specifically you focused on the idea of secularization versus religion, most notably in the book Secularism in Question, Jews and Judaism in Modern Times, which you co-edited with uh, Ari Goskowitz. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Yaskovich. Can you tell us about the place of Jews in France post-World War II and this question of secularization versus religiosity? Um, right. So let's take a big step back on the secularism question um, and, and move the lens out from France for a moment okay. uh, because it's a, it's a broader issue, right? Uh, we, that book is a result of a working group that was part of at the University of Pennsylvania, the Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies, now 10 years ago, and the impetus for that working group was a major debate, a major rethinking of secularization as an inevitable narrative that had been very widespread through the 80s and even to the 90s among many historians and social scientists, and the rethinking of secularism as from a more critical perspective, um, rather than simply as a kind of neutral uh, way of separating church and state and creating space for everyone, which tends to be our conventional view of it. So there has been a major rethinking in significant part because of developments that we know about in our world in the case of secularization. The Iranian Revolution in 1979 was a big impetus for a lot of people. September 11th is a more recent memory for many of us, but the rise of various religious groups in many cases, uh, radical religious groups and their success forced a rethinking of the secularization narrative as it became called. Uh, and meanwhile, secularism in places like France uh, is regarded by many people as having exclusionary components to it, as defining who can and can't speak in the public sphere and in what ways. And so that more critical perspective has opened a lot of new paths in uh, analyzing the place of religion and what it means to call things secular in various contexts. So that had had very little to say about Jews and Judaism, and Jewish studies had had very little engagement with those conversations when our working group was convened. So that was the broad goal of that collection that we put together was to bring together Jewish studies, in the case of Judaism, with those conversations. The French case, as I started to allude to a moment ago, is a very interesting one because laïcité, as the French call it, uh, this public secularism that is deeply embedded in French culture and in French law since the 1905 separation law, is a striking case of the challenge of negotiating some place for religious groups in the public sphere in a country that has had a notion about a neutral public sphere that actually goes back right to the French Revolution and that the 
the kind of neutral self, if you will, the unencumbered self of the abstract individual that's at the heart of ideas of revolutionary citizenship and Republican citizenship, uh, frequently those ideals find themselves uncomfortable with what it means to bring religion into the public sphere, with what it means to bring another uh, ethnic or national identity to the public sphere. They uh, historically had a very hard time with what they viewed as ineffable biological differences in the case of women. So what we, you know, what I dealt with some in that book and, and more in my book on Jews and Muslims was how have various groups tried to find ways to negotiate a place where they were both fully French and in a sense French first in public and still able to also bring other identities and allegiances into the public sphere and public conversations. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50 to get 50% off. That again is frenchhistory50 at factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50. Sign up now. Your stomach will thank you later. And it seems like, at least to some extent, that Jews have been successful in this regard, and we can talk about more modern events because things have seemed to take a turn, but at least for now, France has the third largest Jewish population of any country in the world, behind only Israel and the United States. Why do you think France, of all countries, has become such a magnet for Jews? Right, so France has historically been a real magnet for Jews, and we should note that despite contemporary challenges, it retains this very large population. There are over 300 kosher eateries in the Paris uh, region, which makes it the city with the second largest, you know, with the largest number of kosher uh, restaurants outside of Israel. Um, And there's a thriving community in many ways. Historically, France, it was the first country to emancipate its Jews during the French Revolution in 1790 and 1791. There is certainly a history of kind of receding and uh, rising levels of anti-Jewish sentiment uh, and receding and rising levels of Jewish rights in France. It's not a straight line, but it is a country that for many Jews after the French Revolution became very strongly identified with a set of notions about tolerance and enlightenment 
and openness to Jews and opportunity for Jews uh, that felt very distinctive and that has certain strong parallels with the American context. And I think for many Jews, they felt and they articulated in the 19th century that the values of the Hebrew Bible were the basis of the values of the French Revolution. And they really felt their destiny as Jews tied up with the destiny of France. And in the early years of the state of Israel, France was one of Israel's strongest allies uh, from 1948 to 1967. People forget that because what came after was much more acrimonious at times. Uh, but that, I think, felt like a continuation for many French Jews of their sense of strong identification between Jewishness and Frenchness. So there's a long history there. And in the 20th century, there were five prime ministers of Jewish descent in France. That's five more than America has had Jewish presidents. Right. So, you know, there's there's a strong sense, you know, in, in the 1950s and 1960s, France was the only country outside of Israel that did not have any quotas on Jewish immigration as hundreds of thousands of Jews came from French North Africa uh, and settled in France. So there's a long history there where Jews have felt welcomed with significant, almost unlimited upward mobility in France. Uh, many Jews have been successful economically, occasionally, you know, to the level of extreme wealth, but more commonly just successfully moving into the French middle class, many, many immigrants within a generation. So I think there's lots of reasons why people have felt that France was a place that Jews could and would succeed. So aside from this positive view, in the past 10 years or so, there has been a lot of complaints of a rising wave of anti-Semitism and whether or not this happens to be the case, I've read certain reports that the Jewish population in France could cut by half within the next 40 years or so. Do you want to tell us about these new challenges Jews face in France, and do you think that there will be an exodus from France? Right. So really what we're looking at can be dated to the fall of the year 2000 in terms of the uh, major shift where you had, in the course of a few months, uh, several hundred, I say seven or eight hundred, reported anti-Semitic incidents, by far the most since World War II in any concentrated period of time, and a sense of shock, further shock, and a sense of betrayal about the unwillingness of the French state for a couple of years to acknowledge France has a problem of anti-Semitism and to articulate it that way. And a steady stream of, on average, six to seven hundred, sorry, yes, six to seven hundred reported uh, anti-Semitic incidents a year, which ranged from graffiti to anti-Semitic mailings to several cases, particularly in the last seven or eight years, of murder, right, uh, of lethal anti-Semitic attacks. And so that's all real. Uh, that's all there, and uh, there's a lot of reasons for it. I talk a little bit about some of those reasons in the last chapter of my book on Jews and Muslims. And so I think people are fearful, and there has been an uptick 
in migration to Israel from France by Jews, not the kind of dramatic swelling that some people predicted and continue to predict. Historians are notoriously bad prophets, so <laughs> I'm not, I, I think the future is up in the air. I think the future is to be made. I think France's challenges with Muslim-Jewish relations, and that's where a majority of anti-Semitic attacks have come in the last several years is from Muslims. All of the lethal anti-Semitic attacks of the last 20 years have been carried out by people who in some way identify with Muslimness or Arabness. Um, that's a small number of attacks, just to be clear, and it's a small number of perpetrators, and I spent a lot of my book trying to uh, show that Muslim-Jewish relations have always been very complex historically, and operating from the assumption that there's nothing automatic about strife today, and that that strife is limited to a small number of people. But all that said, how France deals with its significant Muslim population and the level of socioeconomic inequality and the, in many cases, discrimination that these people face, uh, the challenges of where they live, all these issues that are very live issues in France, I believe those issues and how France addresses them will do much to shape the future of Jews in France because I think if France is successful at integrating more of its population from North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, then anti-Semitism will be a much smaller factor. Um, but these are hard issues and you know, a big part of the challenge is that in pockets of that cultural world from which many people come, anti-Semitism is endemic. It's automatic. It's part of how people were raised, just like we're all raised with certain biases. Uh, and uh, Mark Weitzman, this French journalist, just published this book called Hate uh, about anti-Semitism in France. And he has some very challenging material there that is illustrative of the way that pockets of that world are so inflected with anti-Semitism. And it's not easy to solve these challenges. But I continue to think that the inequalities that many of these people face do a lot to shape the ways in which they take on radical ideologies of all sorts. Uh, and so the degree to which France can deal more successfully with its social problems, there's not a lot to make us super optimistic in recent French history on this score, but uh, it is going to do a lot to shape this question, I think. Absolutely. So now that it's been brought up, I do want to jump into your work on Jewish-Muslim relations. I think one thing that most people would be shocked to hear is that Jewish-Muslim relations were quite amicable up until the 1920s, 30s, and perhaps even longer. Do you want to explain why this was? Well, Jewish-Muslim relations have always been complex. Um, and the fact is that the Jews and Muslims who uh, came to France from North Africa 
beginning in the 20s and 30s and in the interwar period after World War One, you have 100 to 130,000 uh, Muslims who come to France uh, who are living in France at a time. You actually have more people who come because they, they come as rotational laborers, they come as seasonal laborers, right? So they usually don't stay in France for more than a consecutive 18 months and then they send a lot of their income back, in many cases, to their families. It's primarily men, it's like 80% men. Often they have wives and children back uh, in North Africa. Um, so you have these people living alongside the first small wave of Jewish migrants from uh, the same countries to France. And sometimes you have shared spaces of culture and uh, music and cuisine and all the things that people knew from North Africa that they had in common, which were quite considerable. I mean, Jews and Muslims had lived together in Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia and the larger uh, Mediterranean world in significant numbers for centuries, well before the French conquest uh, in Algeria in the 19th century. And while they didn't live on equal terms per se, they often lived quite amicably, and they influenced each other's uh, habits and customs and culture, and so they brought all that with them. But the other piece is, of course, that Jews and Muslims faced not identical, but often similar challenges as minority ethno-religious groups in France that struggled for full acceptance, that struggled to negotiate this very divide of you know, secular public culture and their uh, private ethnic and religious identities that I spoke about earlier. And so in many cases, there were groups of Jews and Muslims who were part of the same groups together, like the International League Against Anti-Semitism, the Ligue Internationale Contre le Racisme et l'Antisémitisme, the LICA, uh, in the 1930s. And that even has remained the case up till today, that certain numbers of Jews and Muslims have worked together in the anti-racist movement in France periodically. Uh, so there also was a reason for a common political cause in many cases on the left. Of course there were tensions, uh, but there, the tensions in France were largely around legal inequalities since Jews in Algeria had become French citizens in 1870 and Jews who came to France from practically anywhere had a relatively smooth path to naturalization since French citizenship law enables people to naturalize as immigrants from most countries uh, within a certain period of years and their children who were born in France to all, almost automatically receive citizenship. Whereas the Muslims who came from Algeria had French nationality but did not have French citizenship uh, and their way of getting French citizenship would have required them to renounce their Muslim status in a way that most viewed as a betrayal of their traditions. Uh, and so their path was much more difficult and it affected everything in terms of their legal rights and their educational background and uh, all kinds of limited possibilities for them. And so that was a source of significant tension. Uh, really only much later, really after the independence of Algeria, it's only then that the principal source of political tension between Muslims and Jews in France becomes the Israeli-Arab and Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. Um, so.
So I specifically wanted to jump into that because I like to consider myself a pretty learned person. However, I'm not an expert on Jewish history, and I think most people make the assumption that Israel was a huge turning point mm -hmm. in Muslim and Jewish relations. However, in uh, we had contacted each other before this interview, and you told me that it was actually Algeria, not Israel, that was a the major turning point in Jewish-Muslim relations in France. Can you uh, explain why that was? Well, Algeria is the catalyst for sort of you know a periodic set of tensions, right? I don't think I would call it a turning point per se. Um, you know, there's a set of riots in Constantine in 1934. Uh, Joshua Cole has a great book coming out on this topic uh, in the very near future. I write about it some in my first book. Uh, and these riots left 25 Jews and three Muslims dead. And they had major ripple effect in the French mainland. And they were illustrative of all the tensions. The fact that Jews had greater legal rights, had greater economic opportunity, had greater educational background in Algeria than Muslims with rare exception. The fact that meanwhile there was the beginning of a real native Muslim politics in Algeria in the interwar period, partly because of the Jonata Law of 1919, which created a small cadre, but a significant one of Muslim men who could participate in local politics, and it had really begun to mobilize uh, in important ways, and also because of the beginnings of Algerian nationalism around a figure named Salihaj, who had started his group actually in the mainland among uh, workers who were coming, these rotational laborers, who were becoming more politicized in the context of Paris's radical political tradition and their experiences that they were having there. So all of that is bubbling up in, this is, this is by far the most significant moment of violence, but it's all bubbling up in the conflict over the future of Algeria. As that becomes a live question, Jews in many cases are liberal, they're committed to reform for Muslims, they would like to see that happen. Uh, Leon Bloom right, puts his name on this failed Bloom Violette bill of 1936, which while a modest reform effort was also considered by many people a major one. Um, but at the same time, they are by and large very wedded to the French presence in Algeria. I mean, they've had citizenship since 1870. That changed their whole education and cultural trajectory, even though many remained attached in certain ways to local uh, Arab culture. And so that's very different than the experiences of Muslims who are becoming increasingly skeptical that they can really ever be fully French and become integrated and gain citizenship as various moments of promise evaporate. Um, and that tension becomes more acute uh, in the aftermath of World War II as the move toward uh, an independence uh, you know, calls for independence and, and ultimately a violent war for independence as that march uh, kind of gets underway in the late 40s and early 50s, um, the underpinnings of tension only grow. And so then you have the French-Algerian War from 1954 to 1962, which as we know is one of the central conflicts of French history writ large in the 20th century and one where, um, you know, 
Muslims had more than one position, and I talk about that in my book. But by the war's end, most Muslims supported the call for independence, the Front de Libération Nationale, the FLN, and Jews were much more conflicted. Uh, and a certain number of Jews even went over to the diehards of Algérie Française, not because they necessarily liked them or liked their methods, but because they felt they were all stood between them and the departure of France and a very uncertain future if France left. Uh, and the vast majority of Jews in Algeria came to France in uh, 1962, uh, and that was a moment of trauma for them. So all of these events made Algeria really central to our story. And it's not that the Israeli-Arab-Israeli-Palestinian conflicts are not important. They are important. But you're right. The assumption that suddenly 1948, when Israel is established, is the watershed moment, it just doesn't really hold in this case, even though what is important is that the Israeli Palestinian Israeli Arab conflicts become mapped on to the Algerian question. They become mapped on to social inequalities. They become lived out by Jews and Muslims in French terms in the mainland more and more, and then eventually take on more a life of their own after 1967. So I want to end by asking a bit about French and Muslim Jewish relations today. How do you see that occurring in France? Um, I particularly ask because right now France has the third largest population of Jews, but it also has one of the largest Islamic populations in Europe. So it appears to me that the positive or negative relationship of these two groups mm -hmm. would have quite a big spillover effect upon the world. That's it. That, I think there is some spillover effects. I think the capacity of Jews and Muslims to live together in France is in some ways a test for a lot of the world, right? That is to say, if France could get this right, that would be a good model for a lot of Europe uh, and beyond. And the level of tension is typically viewed as almost an inevitable spillover from the Middle East conflict in a way that course, loses sight of a lot of the complexities that we've been talking about here and a lot of the particularities of the French case. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I think that France has a country that has prided itself on its ability to integrate diverse populations. It forgets periodically. This is Chef Aldemariel's argument about the amnesia of French uh, immigration history that France forgets in each generation that it already integrated all these people uh, before. It hasn't had a chance yet to forget because in the, in the case of North African uh, Muslims because that integration has been less successful, although it's been more successful by many measuring sticks than people tend to realize in terms of the way that opportunity uh, comes for second generation people and the way that on a whole series of uh, metrics, people's cultural assumptions gravitate toward those of the broader French population when you look at these polling statistics uh, after they, they've uh, lived there for a generation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, is a, it is a question that concerns us all uh, because we're living in a world that is sharply divided in so many instances along ethno-religious lines, and the wider conflict between Jews and Muslims that is centered uh, in this small strip of land 
uh, in the Middle East, um, that much of which uh, is regarded by many of us as Israel and uh, at the same time contested and uh, called by others Palestine. Um, that, that conflict is one that has vast ramifications and I think the real question that gets asked in France that really resonates for everyone is can people separate their allegiances, their ethno-religious identifications that tie into that conflict from a life that is somewhere else where they have many strands to their identity and their life that go beyond that conflict. Right? And a lot of people I spoke to in France put it in those terms. And they said, you know, I tell my Jewish friends or I tell my Muslim friends, look, I am more, you know, uh, faithful to the Israeli side. I'm Jewish. You're more faithful to the Palestinian side. You're Muslim. I don't blame you. I hope you don't blame me. That doesn't mean we can't get along here. Right? The, the slogan of, one of the slogans of SOS Racisme, this anti-racist movement that was born in the mid-1980s and many of its early activists were Jews and Muslims, one of their slogans was, we cannot solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on the banks of the Seine. Hmm. Right? Meaning, we shouldn't be trying <laughs> and we should be focused on what our common causes are here. And that has not been something that most people have been able to really do is to have a strong sense of separation that says we share a life here, we have to have a sense of common destiny here, and the things that divide us are somewhere else, and we need to be able to compartmentalize them, right? And I think that is something that, you know, in a world that is constantly smaller because of the ways that we're interconnected across the globe, we have to all face that question of, can we take the things that are maybe opposing allegiances and put them aside in the name of a, a common good? So this conflict, which centers on a small strip of land in the Middle East, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that conflict has vast ramifications for the world. And in that sense, France is a kind of testing ground for whether spillover as it's often referred to from the Middle East, can be contained, can be set aside. Well, hopefully Paris will retain its 300 kosher shops. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Katz. Thank you for having me. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work, 
and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.